Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. From fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. Welcome to Books and Nachos, the Venganza Media podcast about everything in print. I'm your host, Stuart in L.A., here to talk about the novel that all your nieces have been insisting you read, The Hunger Games. Actually, that is not true. I was the first one to read it in my family. I told my niece about it, which is strange because while I do consider myself a lifelong avid reader, I have never particularly been big on young adult fiction. And even as a kid, you know, I, I didn't want to read books that were meant for kids. I thought they'd be wimpier. I thought that they would talk down to me. I didn't want them to wuss out. I wanted to read adult stuff. And even if I didn't know the vocabulary or the terminology, I would go look it up. I would insist that I was an adult long before I was. So, you know, I never opened a cover of a Harry Potter book. I would never dream of touching Twilight. That's young adult fiction is not my bag. But Hunger Games is different to me. I got on board this phenomenon pretty early, 2010, two years before there ever was a movie. What happened was I read an article in The New Yorker about how there were these books that were coming out all about failed societies, kids killing each other, brutal science fiction stuff. And what piqued my interest was that these stories were being consumed by a demographic you wouldn't think, young women and girls, not typically who's into dystopian stories. I mean, boys or girls, really, when you think about it, I don't think that that's something that young people tend to gravitate to. I mean, yes, I read 1984 and Lord of the Flies when I was in grade school, but I don't remember them being playground favorites. Kids usually like stories about hope, positivity, telling them that the future is going to be brighter in their good hands. And so... You know, this was weird. I had to investigate. I had a couple nieces. One of them was age appropriate. I rang her up. I asked her, do you know about Hunger Games? And, you know, if she did, if she had said something dismissive or ambivalent, like, oh, yeah, a couple of my friends in study group like it or whatever, I would have probably lost interest. But she hadn't heard of it either. So then I really just, I got a bug up me and I, I just had to know what was going on in this culture that all of these supposed girls out there were reading Hunger Games? When did we start trading Barbie for Battle Royale? What's going on? So I went to the library, I picked up a copy, and I just read the blurbs on the back. You know, they usually have endorsements from like-minded people. And so naturally, yes, there she was, Stephanie Meyer, author of The Twilight Saga. She's quoted as saying... I was obsessed with this book. The Hunger Games is amazing. Well, okay. All right. So that tells me that this is for a Twilight romantic kind of audience. I was thinking about back to Titanic. Okay. You know, that was a tragic, morbid story, but there were girls that were galvanized by it. The doom in the air was balanced by whether Kate was going to end up with Leo. And so maybe that's what this is. Maybe it's not as morbid as it sounds. But then I read the next blurb, and it was from Stephen King, who, you know, has kind of covered this territory before in books like The Running Man and The Long Walk. His quote, 
I couldn't stop reading generates nearly constant suspense. Okay, well, then there's a horror tie-in here. Maybe it's for the kid that just grew out of goosebumps or something. But then the third blurb really threw me. It was praised from the New York Times Book of Review. Brilliantly plotted and perfectly paced is the quote. So they cater to a very literate adult audience. I'm now thinking, wow, who is able to write a book that appeals to all these demographics? Who is this author, Suzanne Collins? The name meant nothing to me at the time, and honestly, all it means to me now is author of The Hunger Games. But in 2008, when Hunger Games was first hitting bookshelves, Suzanne Collins is a 45-year-old best-selling author already. She had just completed a book series. It was called The Underland Chronicles. And apparently it's about an 11-year-old boy and his young sister who fall down a hole in New York City and find this subterranean universe. It sounds a little bit like a modernized Alice in Wonderland. You know, Wonderland, Underland, kids falling into this magical realm, nonsensical magical creatures that they meet. But there also are plot points here that vaguely resemble things that are going to pop up in Hunger Games as well. You know, Underland sounds similar to District 13, which is a rebel base we're going to meet in the third book, Mockingjay. It's built underground in the aftermath of the war. Underland seems to have some war themes as well. There's an arena in both series where war games are fought. In both series, a boy and a girl are going to partner together to go into this environment. But Underland Chronicles, make no mistake, it was written for a much younger audience than Hunger Games. I think the cover recommends between grades three and seven. So it's a more limited audience. I don't want to read it. I'm not going to read it. But it did well. It sold about a million copies, all told. All five books, million copies. Nothing to sneeze at. That said, when you compare it to what happens next, it can't even hold a candle. I mean, to date... The three Hunger Games books that are out there, Hunger Games, Catching Fire, Mockingjay, they have sold a combined 65 million copies throughout the world. That is a big breakthrough for young adult fiction. That means it's more than kids reading it. Now, it's not as big as, say, Twilight. You know, that's to put it in perspective, Twilight sold 100 million copies compared to the 65 million copies. But I just want to get this out of the way because I think it's out there in the culture that these things are similar. To me, Hunger Games is not like Twilight. I know that they get mentioned in the same breath a lot. I think because they were marketed that way, both as books and movies. Lionsgate owns the rights to both. They they market them in a similar way. And it's true. They're both about young women caught between two guys in a fantastical situation. But to me, they're written for entirely different sensibilities if not different audiences. And I mentioned in the Books and Nachos podcast last week that what I really felt like Hunger Games gets compared to more often than Twilight is Battle Royale, which is a Japanese science fiction novel that was published here in America. It was translated in 2003, five years before there was a Hunger Games. I also mentioned on that show that Suzanne Collins denies any Battle Royale influence on her work. She didn't read the book, she didn't see either movie while she was writing the trilogy. I take her at her word, but it does beg a question. I want to know. If Battle Royale is not the influence, what was she thinking about writing this provocative piece of fiction? Why would a children's author tell a story about school kids killing each other? 
Well, as I thought about it, I mean, it really cannot be undersold what an exhausting, anxiety-ridden decade the 2000s were. I mean, you had 9-11, the war on terror, Katrina, red state, blue state politics were really divisive, the financial collapse, there were a lot of school shootings. Some days it really did feel like the world was going to end. I mean, it felt on some days I can remember feeling many days. <laughs> we, If we weren't on the verge of annihilation, we were at least witnessing the collapse of the American empire. And I think that is the sentiment that really permeates the Hunger Games. You can tell it was written in that decade. The book is set in a future America called Panem, uh, which is the Latin word for bread. Why bread, you ask? Well, Suzanne Collins is referencing another highly accomplished empire that collapsed quickly and unceremoniously, the Roman Empire. And part of that decline was the fact that they entertained crowds with gladiator blood sport. They called it bread and circuses, which, you know, forgive my Latin, but I believe it's pronounced panem et circenses. So Panem bread, that's that's what they're getting at. The bread and circuses environment uh, that was at the end of the Roman Empire. And Collins clearly wants us to draw those parallels to America uh, many times. Uh, you're going to see a lot of Roman society reflected back in the names and imagery used to describe the capital of Panem. There is a president, Coriolanus Snow, History tells us Coriolanus was first an exiled 5th century Roman general, and Shakespeare wrote a play about him in which he's presented as sort of a deformed fascist, and Collins more or less stays faithful in that depiction here as the president is quite evil and a fascist. Uh, on Panem television, we have a popular host named Caesar. Of course, Julius Caesar, the name was used many times over, he was so popular. Plutarch a famed Roman historian. Collins' book, Plutarch, is one of the people who designs the arena where kids fight and die. And, you know, what better equivalency for gladiator games than our current reality TV? Collins said that that's really where the idea for Hunger Games came from. She was flipping channels between the news, Survivor, American Idol, and she saw a lot of irony, and I think she was a bit horrified, that we were more obsessed with these fake life-or-death stakes, this sensationalized war, rather than the real war games that were playing out, you know, on the other less-watched channels, in Senate hearings, back rooms of Washington. You know, the, the political unrest seemed to be quelled by a superficial reality sheen. And so, Colin saw something worth exploring and expanding upon into a book series in that feeling. She imagines Panem to be the world after the United States has collapsed. And that we're kind of getting back to our roots, really. You know, America began as 13 British colonies, got fed up, dumped tea in the harbor, proclaimed our independence from Mother England. Suzanne Collins does not use the word colonies. She calls them districts. But basically, Panem is comprised of 13 districts, uh, very similar to our colonies. They, they all provide material goods and services to the capital. So rather than England, we have this evil capital. And, you know, it's very specialized work. District 2 makes all the weapons. District 4 makes 
you know, fishing happen. Five runs the power. District seven is a logging community, so on. In exchange for doing all of this, for giving up these riches, the president that lives in the capital claims to offer peace and unity that, you know, it keeps order uh, in, in return, which kind of sounds like nothing to me, really, when you think about it. When you, particularly when you see the capital citizens getting richer while the masses in the districts toil in various states of poverty, you know, the capital has a real 1% quality to it. Uh, the districts realize they got a bum deal and District 13 is really the first to revolt. Now, there's not a lot of details about the war that happens. This book is happening 75 years after this Panama War. All we know, really, is it's referred to as the Dark Days. It happened 74 years ago. And unlike the American Revolution, the little guy didn't win. Uh, the rich capital, fat cats, remained in power. And what's more, they were really pissed. Uh, they wiped District 13 completely off the map. And the other 12 districts are forced to pay a heavy tax for their insurrection. And that tax is the Hunger Games. Each year, a boy and a girl are taken from each district and forced into an arena. And there they will compete in this game that's kind of like Thunderdome, quite frankly. 24 tributes enter, one child leaves. And, you know, you can find many examples in popular culture of, of gladiator sport. I do think that this is another idea that goes back to Roman times. I do think that Susan Collins' mentality and inspiration continues to be the Roman Empire's collapsed, albeit, in this case, Greco-Roman myth. If you study classical mythology, you may remember that Greece had a minotaur problem at one point. Some half-bull, half-man monster, it lived in a labyrinth on the island of Crete, and it ate people. And the solution to this problem for many years was for people in the surrounding area to send in their virginal young people into this maze where they basically become the minotaur's dinner. And it took this brave young man with a sword named Theseus to stop this bloody ritual. Hunger Games works in exactly the same way. The capital is the Minotaur in this case, and the districts are just feeding the monster. They're allowing their children to go into this arena year after year. And really, what's gained out of it? All right, yes, there is one so-called winner. Whichever kid is left standing at the end of the game uh, gets to be a celebrity. And supposedly, they live on the rest of his or her days in the lap of luxury. That story's not entirely true when you read the trilogy, but that's the way it's presented. That's the way we understand it as we start the story and see the Hunger Games for the first time. But our perception of that will deepen and become more muddy as we go through these books. Basically, the Hunger Games serve as a constant reminder that the government is more powerful than the individual. Uh, these symbolic annual deaths are just a taste of the fatalities that would occur if, if the district tried to rebel again. So over time, I think the citizens of Panem just accept it as a fact of life. Actually, it's more than that. Truthfully, when you think about it, they've gotten into it. Not only have they accepted it, they bought into it. It's It's gone on so long. The Hunger Games are now broadcast live on television to all the districts, and it's become a sport. This colorful, sensationalized 
fashionable thing. It keeps people distracted. They forget who the real enemy is. They forget that it doesn't have to be this way. So is that Collins' opinion of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, given that if Hunger Games came out of the idea that she was mad at the way that the wars were being undersold to people on television? I suppose it is tempting to take a left-wing interpretation of this whole trilogy and say, okay, she's, she's just saying that Bush sent all of these kids into a needless war so that he and his cronies could get oil and get rich. That certainly is a popular attack on the president at that time. Unfortunately, I, I don't think that that's really what she's trying to get at. It's not that simple. The satire here is way more nuanced, and I think it has broader political appeal than just an attack on a bush. But, you know, I, I do think it came out of that. I would not surprise me if she was sympathetic towards anti-Bush supporters. But again, this is not really to be reduced to red state or blue state propaganda. I think... On one hand, yes, liberals and socialists are going to focus on how the deck is stacked against poor people. The Hunger Games pretend to be fair because the candidates are chosen by a lottery system. Each boy and girl tribute is chosen when a representative from the Capitol reaches into a jar on live TV and pulls out a piece of paper, and whoever's name is on that piece of paper, they go in. That seems fair, right? That seems equitable for all, but it's not. If you're poor, the odds are forever in your favor to get picked. And why is that? Well, because most of the people in the districts are hungry, hence the name of the games. The Hunger Games, the government is happy to provide food if you don't have a livable wage, and most people don't, but every time you ask for a handout, another piece of paper with either your name or the name of your children goes into that jar and your odds for getting picked increase based on your need. So the ones that are at most financial disadvantage are the ones most likely to get drafted into these games. And the poorer you are, the less likely you'll win. I mean, that's just the fact. Capital children, it should be said, never play. They don't have to. They're the punishers. They don't get punished. But there is a middle class. I would say that the richer districts, the ones with lower numbers, like District 1 or 2, they have an unfair advantage over the other districts. Let me just take an example here. Uh, District 2, they make the weapons, which means, first of all, they're familiar with tools that kill at a very early age. Weapons are highly valued by Panem, so that district has more money. They make something that is more of value, and thus they have resources. They can actually spend money to train their children to be better in the arena. They bulk up, they put on muscle, they learn all kinds of ways to kill. And so, yeah, they definitely have a distinct advantage over some malnourished kid from District 10 who spent his whole life picking cotton in a field. The districts in the lower numbers consistently win the games. And I think the equivalency is that middle class, yes, has more of a chance in today's society here in America, better preparing their children for college or financial success or just a better way of life than if you're poor. If you're in the higher number districts, you essentially go into the games to be a body count. Nobody expects you to do well. Now, with all of that said, with all of that 
leftist liberal politics and attack on social class as the problems, I do think that Republicans and libertarians are going to see this scenario with an entirely different emphasis that is equally valid and interesting. To them, the problem is going to be that Panem has a government that has gotten too big, and people expect the capital to fulfill every need. Having a centralized government means oppression, basically. Every aspect of life is controlled. People live fenced in, starved, enslaved. That is why the hero of this story is a 16-year-old girl who has really every perceivable disadvantage thrown at her. She's in District 12, the poorest colony. She lost her father at an early age in a coal mining accident. Her mother is mentally weak. She's prone to bouts of depression. There were several nights where there was no food on the table. So what does this girl do? She doesn't go ask for a handout. She picks up a bow and arrow. She sneaks off into the woods. She shoots herself a squirrel and she brings it home for dinner. She is not going to live off food stamps. She's going to live off the land like a pioneer. Don't tread on me. Of course, I am talking about Katniss Everdeen. Katniss Everdeen, quite a name, I know. Somehow, as popular as this series is, I don't see that name surplanting Madison, Madeline, or Dakota in popularity in terms of baby names. I I just don't think Katniss has a ring that you, you just want to give a kid. Apparently, a Katniss is a plant that grows potatoes or, or a tuber underwater. Why anyone would name their daughter such a thing? Well, Again, keep in mind, the Everdeens are self-made people. They know about plants extensively, and that puts them at a advantage over other people in District 12 because, you know, they, they're not asking for Obamacare. They're not asking for HMOs. If they need a doctor, they go into the garden, they get the right herb. And Katniss's mother is a self-made pharmacist. She has given her daughters horticultural names, and when the father was alive, he was teaching them how to hunt. I mean, they want these kids to do well by being self-sufficient and not expecting the government to do anything for them. So it has real true blue conservative values here. And I think that the names of Katniss and Primrose are indicative of the natural world, of the natural way to be. Now, Hunger Games is told in first person. Everything we are going to see and hear in this story is from Katniss's perspective. So as the novel begins, we're seeing this 16-year-old girl preparing her 12-year-old sister, Primrose, for her first reaping ceremony. The reaping is the name given to the selection process, the lottery that determines which boy and girl from District 12 is going to the Capitol to fight in the Hunger Games. Every child has to participate between the ages of 12 and 18. So Katniss has two years to go before she's out in the clear. Primrose just started. She has, you know, just turned 12. May the odds be forever in your favor is a popular capital expression. And it's the one that Katniss repeats to her sister because she only has five strips of paper in that jar. Katniss worked hard. She went out there. She hunted. She got her own food for her family. There was no need to buy more food and increase the odds against Primrose getting picked. But it doesn't matter. The odds are never in her favor. Primrose's name is pulled. And everyone knows that's a death sentence. The entire crowd gathered to watch the ceremony. It's horrified. 
District 12 has only had two winners in the last 73 years, and Primrose is not one one of them. She's small, she's meek, she's never held a weapon. Katniss has really kind of protected her from violence and shielded her from the cynicism that she suffers through. Uh, she has no shot at taking down some pumped-up jock from District 1. She will die in that Hunger Games. But... You know, I think the attitude is better her than me. Nobody is wanting to take her place. Nobody wants to die. Uh, the town has a big party after the reaping to celebrate. All the other children get to dance and sing and go, whew, they passed me over for another year. So nobody feels so bad for Primrose that they wish to be in her place, even though they could volunteer. And that is what happens. I, I think the reason why we see Katniss as a hero so early on is because she surprises everyone in the town square and agrees to take Prim's place in the games. The odds aren't in her favor either, quite frankly, but she has better odds. She can hunt. She can use a bow and arrow. And she has four years on Prim. She's more developed. She's more powerful. All of this is unfolding really in the first 25 pages of the book. This is a very expedient, rapidly told story. You can really read this book within a matter of hours. It's very involving instantly. And I think, you know, just in these 25 pages, we're led to believe that Katniss is going to go to the arena with the guy that she likes. I won't say loved because to Katniss... Love is not really in the equation. She has to worry too much about survival to think about romance. But she does go out into the woods and hunt with Gail Hawthorne. And, you know, he's got like 42 slips of paper in the boy's jar. And they just have led us to believe, okay, it's going to be him. And we want it to be him because he's this big hunk that she likes and he'll protect her. And even though one of them will have to kill the other, even if they manage to kill all the other tributes, we feel like they have a better shot as a team. They've already been working as a team. Gale is really the only boy that Katniss has ever gotten close to. So it needs to be him, right? But Collins knows we need drama here. We need a ripple. And so it's another blow to Katniss that the boy tribute is not Gale. It's Peta Mellark. Let me spell that out for you. P-E-E-T-A. Peta. Not Peter. Peta. Think bread again. Peta bread. That helped me anyway. He's actually the son of a baker, so it really does fit. Uh, you know, I, I said it often. Oh, Pita Bread. Pita Bread is marching off with Katniss to his inevitable death in the Hunger Games. And wouldn't you know it, irony of ironies, he's always had a crush on Katniss, but never had the courage to talk to her before. So this is like a real icebreaker for him. You know, maybe death matches are, are good in that way. Maybe more girls would be asked to prom if guns were hel held at boys' heads. I don't know. But I realize how this is sounding. I told you this wasn't like Twilight. And now you're thinking, this sounds like Twilight. This sounds like romance fiction. Which boy will win Katniss's heart in the games? The love triangle factor. You know, it is a part of this story, particularly in the later books. It becomes more important. But I think it would be a gross mischaracterization to say romance fiction fans are going to love this story because of the way this plays out. I think that the love story that, that does play out here is one of sisters. It is between Katniss and Primrose. 
Our hero is going to do whatever it takes to survive in the arena so that she can come home and continue to hunt for her family and keep Prim out of that jar and out of getting picked again because she's still got six more years before she's going to not be eligible for Hunger Games. So if Katniss dies, who is going to do that? I mean, Gale could go out and do some of that hunting, but he's got his own family. So Katniss isn't thinking about getting the comfort of some man. She knows that she will probably have to kill Peta if he doesn't die by someone else's hands. At some point in this game, there is only one winner. So she's got to protect herself to get back and, and save the one she really loves. But what is hilarious about this story to me, what is kind of rich about its satirical element, is that Katniss is going to be forced to pretend to love Peta anyway for the enjoyment of the television audience. I think that this is really the part where Hunger Games excels over Battle Royale. The Japanese story, they have very similar qualities in, in how this is set up, but it was so eager to get to the gore of the battlefield that it never really gave much consideration for the culture and the world that created the battles. And it really became a series of melodramatic stories about unrequited high school love. Hunger Games is more attuned to the social media age and the anxieties that surround Facebook and being liked and having the world watching you. It's not enough that these kids have to be thrust into a stadium, pick up a weapon and kill each other. They have to do it with a smile. They need to make sure that the people watching at home, particularly the rich, influential people of the capital, want them to be the winner. Because if the audience decides they like you, they don't click a button. They don't go to Facebook. They pay for supplies that you need. There will be a parachute that drops down food or medicine or something that could save your life in the weeks that the Hunger Games unfolds. This thing can go on for a long time. In fact, many people don't die because of, you know, injuries sustained by fighting. They die from elements. They die from hunger, starvation, cold. And so popularity is the difference between life or death. That's why I know I couldn't do this. You know, you always kind of project yourself into these scenarios when you think about it. And I'm like, you know, all right, if it had been me and, and they were thrusting me into this arena full of booby traps and dangerous armed people and, you know, how would I do? I could dig deep, I think. I think I could rally. But when you take away my ability to complain, if you tell me I need to pretend to be in love with another tribute that I'm going to have to kill anyway... Uh, because that's what the folks at home want to see. Oh, no, man. I, screw that. Vote me off the island. I am not your American idol. I cannot play by those rules. So I feel for Katniss. Poor Katniss and Peta, the sap that loves her, that is that knows she doesn't love him, but is playing along for the cameras. They have these handlers that tell them during training, you really got to make this work because that is your angle. You know, the idea that two tributes from the same district are in love is going to make District 12 stand out. It's a district that, again, largely is thought to be full of losers. And so 
being a cute couple gives them novelty. And they go on talk shows in promoting this. This this training is a couple days, but it's very extensive media coverage where they have to go out on flashy outfits, laughing, and, you know, basically just shamelessly grovel for attention and affection and likes. And in truth, the bond that Katniss is really going to have with PETA is shaky. For much of the games, she does not trust him. You know, she thinks that his lover boy angle that he professes to have always been in love with her is fake and that he's actually part of an alliance of rich tributes that are tracking her and trying to kill her once the games begin. Her true friend is from an entirely different district. Uh, Rue, a little girl, you know, District 11 is equally poor. And I think she kind of looks like Primrose, her sister. I think that, that truly any time Katniss is thinking about Primrose and anything that makes her think about Primrose, she is fostering her maternal side. She is going to be gravitating towards that. And so, yeah, Rue and her are really the tighter bond than her and Peta for much of the games. I don't want to say too much about the games. I'll be honest with you. I feel like, like Battle Royale, I don't want to spoil what happens in this arena. It's a big part of the fun is that the reader discovers it for themselves. Go in cold. I've spent a lot of time here outlining the parameters of Hunger Games because that's the stuff that really grabbed me. It sold me on the possibility of a kitty death match. You know, Battle Royale it got to it quick and you just kind of have to accept it like a sports game. This book takes its time and I think it really sells you on the plausibility of this world. But it doesn't belabor details. You're on that battlefield with Katniss in less than 150 pages of a 380-page novel. And so while yeah, Battle Royale, it took 60 pages to do what Hunger Games did in 150, I think that extra, you know, 90 pages is well utilized to get us to feel for the participants in a way that Takami's work never did. I get now why young girls are excited to read this story. I can't think of a female heroine in fiction, young adult fiction particularly, who makes such a strong impression by being both, you know, physical, intelligent, and compassionate. I'm sorry, Peter Bread, but, you know, I'm not on your team, and I'm not on Team Gale. The star of this show is Katniss. You like her. You want her to succeed. But Hunger Games did not sell 65 million copies exclusively to girls in junior high school. This book has wide appeal to anyone who likes science fiction, action-based stories, even horror. I fully endorse this. I mean, I've been holding off on what they encounter, but there are some kind of gross, scary things that you're not even going to see in the movie. I mean, if you like zombie movies... What's coming for the tributes in the climax is truly horrifying. I couldn't believe it. And it is not in the movie. So you have to read the book to know exactly what it is. I'm not going to spoil it. I'll just say that the capital is big on genetic manipulation. They have technology that, you know, they, they tweak birds and wasps and every other beast in the animal kingdom. And what they do with wolves in the end, eek. I do feel really lucky that I read Hunger Games before there was a movie. So I know these characters in my mind, independent of Jennifer Lawrence, Woody Harrelson, Donald Sutherland, so many of the well-known stars that got involved. 
they aren't my first impressions of these characters. Reading it the second time, though, I got to say, if you have seen the movies, it is kind of hard to keep those movie versions of the characters out. You know, they, they do creep in from time to time. It's too bad because I'll just go ahead and say Hunger Games works so much better as a book than a film, at least this first one. I mean, I haven't seen all the movies yet as of this recording, but Hunger Games, the book, really, there is no substitute. I think it is a prime example of a well-told, satirical, funny, exciting, thrilling story. I really urge everyone to read it. Even if you were underwhelmed with the movie or you don't think it's for you, if you have enjoyed science fiction at all, I think it's worth your time. If you want to hear my thoughts on the movie, those are out there too. I mean, that's why we have NowPlayingPodcast.com. If you go to that website, click the donation banner at the top of the page, become a silver level donor, you can hear my thoughts on the films. I have shared them with Arnie and Jacob, and we're going through all four of the movies. But there really is no substitute for Suzanne Collins' first book, and so I'm just left wondering, can she keep it up? I hope you stay with me here at Books and Nachos in the weeks ahead as I get to the rest of the trilogy. We're going to be at Catching Fire next week. And word of warning... I made the choice not to spoil the end of Hunger Games here. I will have no choice but to do that next week. Talking about Catching Fire, obviously I'm going to have to tell you who wins the Hunger Games and how. So you better get reading, right? Go out there, get the book, read it, and be prepared to hear about the second one next week. Until then, keep reading. I'll talk with you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our show by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find dozens more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2015, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated.